0: About a year ago, <clears throat> Mike and I were uh, preparing to go to Myanmar, and uh, he had uh, already, we were going to teach guys the book of Romans. He had already taught through the first seven or eight chapters of Romans the year before, and he was going to teach through chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 last year, last August, and he asked me if I would do chapters 12 through 16, which is basically the application chapters for Roman. And uh, I. I had just gotten out of school and was hustling to try to prepare this for two months down the road to go to Myanmar. So it was hurry-up, you know, a real hurry-up situation. So we went over Romans 13, 1 to 7 in Sunday school. It was kind of incomplete, and uh, so now I think it's a more complete uh, picture I have of this, although there's many questions in Romans 13, 1 to 7 that arise. As, you, as, you, as you, we go through this passage, many questions will arise in your mind, and you'll, you'll think, well, what about this and what about that? And you'll realize as we go through this, not a, the questions can't be answered totally to everybody's satisfaction. It just probably isn't possible. But we'll do the best we can tonight. At any rate, um, you can turn to Romans 13, 1 to 7, but I want to start off in Philippians chapter 3, actually. Philippians 3.20 says that believers <clears throat> have their citizenship in heaven. And uh, we know that as such, a believer is going to conduct himself in a different manner than a person who would merely have a citizenship in some country on earth. Believers have a dual citizenship here on the earth and also in heaven. And we're not going to be like the ungodly. It says in Philippians, in the uh, first previous to the one that talks about our citizenship being in heaven, it says the ungodly set their minds on earthly things. And believers are not to do that because Colossians says what? Set your mind, your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. So we have this different mindset as believers. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so Paul knew he had that citizenship in heaven. He was to live for Christ. That was what his life was all about. In fact, in chapter 3, he says this, More than that, I count all things but loss, to, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. <clears throat> so his, his focus was on heaven. His focus was on uh, eternal realities and, and spiritual life in Christ, as it should be. Somebody said this. They said, our home is in heaven, and here on earth we are a colony of of heavenly citizens. And that's what we are on Earth, a colony of heavenly citizens. And it's true. We're just strangers and aliens passing through this world. Our home is not here. As if you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, which by the way, let me recommend that again. Every Christian, honestly, should read that book at least once in their life. And in that book, the the pair of people traveling through the world, are traveling through the world on, on a journey on their way to the celestial city celestial city is heaven. And that's what we are. We're strangers. We're pilgrims. We're on our way to the heavenly city, and our our job is to focus on Christ, right, things of God. We're not here to serve ourselves. We're not here to amass great wealth. We're not here to build an empire of some kind or something for ourselves, but that's not our purpose at all. And Paul understood that, and so he says to the believers in Philippi, your citizenship is in heaven. Remember that. Don't forget that. But the same people that he wrote to in Philippi, to where Paul said, your citizenship is in heaven, those same people, he realizes they also have a citizenship in the Roman Empire in the the first century. In fact, Acts 16.12 says that Philippi was a Roman colony. And so the people that lived in Philippi, in particular the believers he's, he's addressing there, they had all the rights and privileges and the responsibilities of Roman citizenship. Not only were they citizens of heaven, but they were citizens of the Roman Empire, and as such, they had to be good citizens. And although today, believers are, well, you and I are citizens of heaven as well, we know the Lord, we are citizens of the United States of America. And as a result, we have a responsibility to the government. In Romans 13, <coughs> Paul calls upon believers to be law-abiding citizens in the first seven verses. Uh, this is one way in which a transformed believer can express his life in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That's where this section start starts. And Paul said there, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul says, look, I want you to be transformed believers. Transf- be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently. Be differently. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like the world. And then he go in chapter 12, he lays out, and, and all the way through chapter 15, verse 13, he lays out what it's like to be a transformed believer. <clears throat> he says, for example, uh, he says that... Uh, you're to function in your God-given, your proper, proper God-given sphere of service. Verse 6, he says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, then use those gifts, whether it's teaching or, or whatever. Use those gifts that, that God has given you. Function in the body of Christ as God would have you to function. That would demonstrate the fact that you're a transformed believer. If you're just lazy and not doing anything for God and you're not carrying out your abilities that God gave you, you're not exercising your spiritual gifts, you're not functioning in the body of Christ, then you're not a transformed believer. He goes on to say that we should demonstrate love to fellow believers. Look at verse 9, chapter 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be de- devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So loving the brethren. He says show preference for others over himself. He talks about contributing to the needs of the saints in this chapter. He talks about practicing hospitality. All these things show that you're, you're a transformed believer. At the end of the chapter, he tells us that believers should live in peace. He says, be of the same mind with one another. Don't seek revenge. Overcome evil with good. And all these instructions. Well, that brings us to chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. We're going to focus tonight. And he makes it very clear that Christians have a responsibility to the governing authorities. That's right. Christians live under a government that they are to be submissive to. In fact, Christians should be, would you not agree with this? the most law-abiding citizens in the country? I think that's fair to say. We should be the most law-abiding citizens in, in the country. And that's a great testimony to the world of how a transformed believer lives, that we're good citizens of, in, in America. So we live as a citizen of heaven, right? Citizens of heaven, but also as those who have been transformed and are submissive to the authority of the government. Well, let's read Romans 13, 1 to 7. <coughs> Romans 13, 1 to 7. says there, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have... Praise from the same, for it, that is the government, the governing authorities, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In Romans 13, 1-7, Paul presents three reasons for the believer's submission to government, three reasons why believers should be submitted to the government. I'll give you all three tonight. We're only going to go over the first one tonight. Uh, Sermon ended up being kind of long, and so I decided instead of killing you all in one night, I'd uh, divide it up between two sermons. Uh, The first reason for submission to government is because of its origin. It's found in verses 1 to 2. The first reason for submission to government is because of its origin. The second reason, which we won't go over, is because of its purpose, verses 3 and 4. The third reason is because of our conscience. But the first reason for submission to government, because of its origin, and we note here in verse 1 that all earthly authority originates in God. All, earth, all earthly authority originates in God. And there's many biblical examples of this. Uh, God has established it so that there be those in positions of authority in this world, and there be those in position, positions of subordination. And we don't like that idea, do we? We don't like people being an authority over us. Omar, do we like that? Omar has, I think, 400 people that answer to him, if I'm not mistaken four or five hundred. And I don't think those four or five hundred people are all that thrilled that Omar is necessarily their boss in some sense. Uh, Some of them might be. But a lot of people, we don't like authority over us. We like to be our own boss and call the shots, right? But there's examples in the Bible where God has established authorities. For example, the husband and wife. It says in uh, Ephesians 5.23, the husband is what? He's the head of the wife, it says even as Christ is also head of the church. And so God has established husbands to be authority in their home, not a demanding, cruel authority, but a loving authority in the home. Husbands, love your wives. And then elders have a place of leadership in the church. I'm not saying this to be self-serving here. It's just a fact. Uh, 1 Peter 5.2 says, shepherd the, uh, two elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And so there is this authority that elders have that is established by God in a church. In the first century, masters had authority over their slaves. About a third, I think, of the Roman Empire was slaves at that time. It says in Colossians 4.1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So they had authority. And then parents have authority over children, ordained by God. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so all these authorities established by God, any any earthly authority that exists uh, has been ordained by God to be so, and that includes the government. I know we don't like that. We think, how could that be so? But that's what God's word says here. Romans 13.1 says, let every person, or every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. <clears throat> that That phrase governing means, the word means to rise above or or surpass. The King James translates it, let every soul be subject unto the what? Higher powers, right? The higher powers, the governing authorities. It's referring to those who, who have authority over others. One commentator said this. He said, God has so arranged the world from the beginning at the creation as to make it possible to render him service within it and this is why he created superiors and subordinates. If you don't have that kind of a system, you have ultimately chaos. Every man's a law unto himself. So God created it this way. <clears throat> now, there have been many in the past who have looked at Romans 13 and 1, and they've said, oh, the authorities here talked about are not governing authorities. They're angelic beings. They're angels that are in authority here. But it doesn't make any sense. Uh, They they say that because the word authority here is used in certain passages to designate angels. But here it it doesn't make any sense because context determines the meaning of a word, where it is found. And here in Romans 13, it's clear it's referring to governmental authorities. Why? Because for one thing, believers are not to be subject to angelic beings, Colossians 2, chapter 2, tells us. We're free from that. We're not under their authority. Number two, the idea of paying taxes in Romans 13, 6, and 7 shows that only earthly authorities are intended, because the last time I checked, and tell me if I'm wrong here, we didn't pay, we don't pay taxes to angels, right? And so that would be another good reason not to think that these are angels. A third reason is that this word authorities here in other passages refers to governmental authorities. So that's another uh, some more evidence for it. And then in uh, the word governing is used elsewhere of earthly rulers. Um, for example, 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, pray for kings and for those who are in high positions. It says in Nasby governing, authorities, I think. Pray for those who are governing. And so it talks about that in reference to the government in, in 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. So the evidence is pointing to the fact that Romans 13 is talking about government authorities here. <coughs> and... Not only, you know, we think back in the day they thought of a king, but you could, today it might be a prime minister or a president or uh, an emperor or any number of government officials uh, that it's talking about here. So we're talking about governmental authorities, and we're to be in subjection to the government, it says. Every person to be in subjection to the government. The word means to submit or to subordinate or to be the, under the authority of someone. It's more than just obedience alone. One one commentator says that subjection indicates the recognition of our subordination in the whole realm of the magistrate's jurisdiction and the willing subservience to their their authority, willingly being subordinate to them. By the way, that word subjection in verse 1 is used in verse 5 again. He says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. He says it again, further strengthening the theme of being subject to the government. And in verse 7, another imperative, render to all what is due them, again, Third command, you could say, regarding the same theme. So he's saying that that this is the theme of this passage, to be subject to the government. And it's not only taught here in Romans 13, it's taught elsewhere. For example, Titus 3.1, uh, Paul says to Titus, remind them to be subject to authorities, uh, to powers. Uh, he's talking about the government there. 1 Peter 2, 13, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as a one in authority or to governors sent by him to do his will, punish the evildoer, and so on. So he talks about it there. So you have this consistent teaching in the Bible about this subject. Now, it's interesting. An interesting example of this, and I'll just read this to you, is found in Luke 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And it says there, now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who's Caesar Augustus? Ruling authority in the world at the time, right? Number one man. He says, here's what I want you guys to do. <laughs> I'm taking a census. I want you to participate in the census. So what do you do? You participate in the census. Roman government says to. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. It didn't seem like anybody disobeyed that command. Guess who went? Guess who was submitted to the government? Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with, guess who else went? Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And so... In the midst of Joseph and Mary obeying a command from the government, submitting to the governmental authorities, they have Jesus during that time period. I just thought that was an interesting uh, example of submission to the government. Now, who is supposed to be under this authority, this governmental authority? Everybody? Well, Romans 13.1 says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Every person. Literally, it's every soul is to be in subjection to the government authority. Now, that's not soul as opposed to body, because in the Old Testament, the word soul was used to designate an entire person, and Paul is using it in the same way. So when the NASB says every person, that's a correct translation. Every person to be in subject, subjection to the government. Uh, and this is every person. So no one, ultimately, no one is exempt from this command. Everybody in any government, unbeliever, believer, it doesn't matter. There's no system in the no government system in the world where everyone in the world is under some governmental system, and everyone in the world is called upon to obey their government. No one is immune uh, is immune from that. Uh, just because a person is an unbeliever doesn't mean he can say, "Well, I can't. I don't have to obey, obey the government. I don't believe in all that religious stuff anyway." Doesn't matter. The government doesn't look at it that way. The Westminster Confession of Faith has an interesting statement here. Listen to this. It says, infidelity, that's talking about unbelievers, unbelievers or a difference in religion, does not make void the government's just and legal authority, nor does it free the people from their due obedience to the government, from which the ecclesiastical persons are not exempted. In other words, religious leaders, they're not exempted either from government obedience, much less has any pope any power and jurisdiction over the government and their dominions or lives, if the pope shall judge the government to be heretics or upon any pretense whatsoever. Huh. It doesn't matter. In other words, whether a person is an unbeliever or a religious leader or even a pope, he's still under the governmental authority. He's, he's, nobody is above the law. It doesn't matter who they are. No one is above the law ever. Now, having said all that, In the context here, the reference to every person is especially talking about believers because he's been talking about how believers should have transformed lives and so on. So especially does this apply to believers in the the context? And and so he's to be in subjection to the the governing authorities. And as I said earlier, the Christian is to be the most law-abiding citizen in the country. There's no reason for, for not being that way. If we're breaking the law, then we're not in line with these imperatives from God, are we? We're breaking not only the law of the land, but the law of God. Why is that so? Because all earthly authority originates from whom? From God, right? It originates in God. So it follows then that all governmental authorities in history have been ordained by God. Now think about that for a minute. All governmental authorities in history have been ordained by God. The scripture testifies to this in Romans 9, 17. God says, of the Pharaoh who ruled during the plagues. For this reason, God says, I raised you up. I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. So God was the one behind that. Another great example in the Bible is Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled most of the world during his time in Babylon. And Daniel's interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. And listen to what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. What? He says, God, the God of heaven has given you the kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. That's where it came from. He's given you the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beast of the field even, or the birds of the sky even, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. That's amazing. We're, very, we're told in no uncertain terms. God is the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom to rule. Now, if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 4, because I want you to see this. <clears throat> Daniel 4. A phrase is used three different times in Daniel 4. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar is has gotten a dream from God, and... Uh, it says he heard in his dream this. Look at Daniel 4:17. Nebuchadnezzar hears in his dream this. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar is being judged by God because of his pride and God says, "I'm going to Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to make you into like an animal. You're going to start acting like an animal. And I'm going to punish you." And so in verse 17 it says, "This dis, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know" That the Most High, here's the phrase, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Wow. Okay, stop there. Sovereignty of God. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And bestows it on whom whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that in his dream. Now Daniel comes to interpret the dream. Look at verse 25. And Daniel says this in verse 24. He says, this is the interpretation, O king, verse 25, that you may be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field, and you'll be given grass to eat like cattle. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. This is God's call on how he distributes governmental authorities. And then just when and Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't take heed to this. He takes about a year. He's still doing his thing, being proud and talking about what a great kingdom he's created himself. And then look at what happens just before judgment falls. Look at verse 31 of the same chapter. Well, verse 30, look what look what Nebuchadnezzar is saying in verse 30. The king's walking 12 months later in verse 29 on the roof of this palace. Babylon king is reflected, and he said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence? <laughs> Look what what a great masterpiece I put together here. I'm somebody. This is really great. Well, I, I rule the world, after all. By the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared. What's been removed from him? Sovereignty has been removed from you. Now you have it, now you don't. And you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. How many times do we have to read this phrase? Nebuchadnezzar still hasn't got it, and now he gets punished by God. But did he learn the lesson? Yeah, look at verse 34. At the end of the of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, finally. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Who are we to question God, right? So Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson. In other words, God is sovereign over the governments of history. Nebuchadnezzar, an example. You know when Paul wrote the book of Romans, the ruling authority at the time, as we said, was Rome, which basically ruled the world. And in John 19, Pilate, Jesus was before Pilate, who was a Roman government authority. And in verse 9, Pilate says to him, where are you from? But the scripture says Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? That is, he's got authority from the Roman government to do that. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. He said, no, uh, Pilate, your authority came from... God, he allowed you to be in a position of authority as a governmental uh, official. And that is the same truth taught in Romans 13. All governments in history have their origin in God, whether whether it's Egypt or Babylon or media Persia or Rome or any government since then. Not only that, and what I'm saying right now, a lot of people don't want to hear. They don't like this reasoning at all, but this is from scripture. Not only that, all governments presently presently existing have been ordained by God. Not just in history, but the ones presently existing have been ordained by God. Romans 13, verse 1, the latter part of the verse says, those which, which exist are established by God. Literally, it's like this. The ones being have been appointed by God. In other words, the ones presently existing have been appointed by God, the governments of the world. That means... The American government, under which we presently live, with its uh, administration, is ordained by God. Understand that. The administration prior to this, ordained by God. The one prior to that, ordained by God. This is God's will. What about North Korea, under Kim Jong-il and his son? Those two wonderful people, established by God. They've been established by God. Does not mean that God endorses all they do. Doesn't mean he endorses their evil. It just means he is in, his, in the sovereign purpose, purposes of God, he's ordained them to be. What about communist China? Ordained by God, the government. What about uh, communist Cuba under Fidel Castro? Same thing. What about the former? What's that? Just yeah, I know. I, I was going to bring that up, but I thought, no, I won't bring it up. Uh, <laughs> Really, did he really resign, or did we really trust that? I think that guy's going to live to be 200. What about the former Soviet Union in recent history? Ordained by God? so it says here. History, present, presently existing, ordained by God. What about Afghanistan's government? The Taliban? What about Libya? Gaddafi? If we're going to go by what the scripture says, it says they've been ordained by God. God has ordained the governments of the world. Daniel 4.17, what did it say? God sets even sets over it even the lowliest of men, right? It doesn't matter what type of government is presently in the world. Military governments, Myanmar is a military government. We've talked about this. Consistently violating human rights year after year. They're in, involved in human trafficking, uh, drug trade, um, child labor. Uh, various forms of oppression in their government. And if you talk to the guys there, and, and, and when I went through Romans 13, they're not thrilled about this idea that they're under this government they don't like. They even have their own independent army that would resist them. But as one of our one of the famous students there would yell in the back, fight the good fight. <laughs> not to fight a fight, fight the good of fight of faith, just to fight. You know? So let's go after these guys. But the fact of the matter is God has ordained the military governments that exist now, monarchies that exist, communist governments, democratic governments. God has established them all in accordance with his will and, his, and for his purposes. So we ask ourselves the question, why is this? And the answer is only God knows. Maybe he is judging a nation. Maybe he is blessing a nation. I don't know. It, who is known the mind of the Lord, right, Romans says? We don't know. We only need to know this, God is sovereign in these matters. That's, what it tell, that's all it tells us here. And so it's, it's true that, he, that authority originates in God, but also opposition to earthly authority is opposition to God, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed to the ordinance of God. They who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. That's what verse 2 tells us. It's a warning. And it therefore signals the two consequences that, that follow. The first is whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. That word ordinance has to do with a, uh, an arrangement, a, a, an ordering. It's the way God has ordered things to be in regard to government. And there's two words used to describe disobedience to government. What are they, First 2? Resist and oppose, right? Similar words and meaning. It, it boils down to this. If you resist ruling authorities, you're refusing to acknowledge the rightful God-given authority of the government. It's rebellion against God's ordering ordering of society. He's ordered it to be this way, and we're we're rebelling against him if if we rebel against the government. And so such a person would stand in opposition to God himself. It reminds me of Gamaliel in Acts 5 when they're uh, going after the apostles for preaching Christ, and he says, wait a minute. (laughs) Uh, If you oppose these men, you may may be found to even be fighting against God himself. And that's the last thing anybody would want. Not a wise thing to oppose that which God has ordained. Well, that's one consequence, but there's a second one. It says in verse 2, those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. What condemnation is he talking about? Future condemnation or present? Well, I think it's a present condemnation inflicted by the earthly rulers, because that's the subject matter here. And it's going to go into verse 3 talking about law enforcement, basically. And so I, I believe in the context, he's talking about earthly authorities inflicting punishment upon those who would op- disobey the government, as they should. We have to keep law and order. Stanley Porter uh, says this, one of the commentators. He says one could say that ju- the judgment of God, that the judgment of the state anticipates God's judgment. You could say that, but certainly any way you look at it, God's displeased with those who would disobey the state. Those who oppose will be punished by the government. All right. This raises a question, because when you read this chapter, this section, you have questions that pop up in your mind, all kinds of questions, always questions when you read these seven verses. Is there ever a time to resist the government? Is there ever a time to resist the government? He says in here, don't resist the government. This is, this is ordained by God. Don't do it. Well, if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus 1. So we can all look at this together. Didn't do this in class. I didn't have anybody turn to any verses, but I am here. Exodus one. You can see, look at verse 15. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of, one of whom was named Shiphrah, the other Puah, and he said, "When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them behind upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death." But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. Wow. You're given a command to put your, the male children to death. How would you respond to this? Sandy and I were talking about this last night. The mid, verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt, the government, the government had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king said, why would you do this thing? Verse 19, uh, they, they give a reason why. But look at verse 20. Is God displeased with their actions that they disobeyed the state? It says, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. So God is blessing the midwives, even though they disobeyed the government here. If you were to, to look further at Hebrews or rather Daniel chapter three, you'll see the uh, you'll see the, the three Hebrew children. As they are faced with a dilemma, they're asked to to bow down before this idol that Nebuchadnezzar has commanded them to bow down before that that represents him himself, and they refuse to do it. They say in verse 16, uh, he gives them a chance to do it, and they say, uh, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, We are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They refused to obey the king, the the governing authority. And what happened in Daniel 3? God delivers from the fiery furnace, right? But what's interesting is the response of Nebuchadnezzar, the government, in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. And he puts his blessing upon them. You violated the government, and yet I'm saying you did the right thing in light of the fact <laughs> what's happened later on. They were delivered from the fiery furnace. Daniel 6, another one. Daniel is uh, told not to pray, or no one's told to pray. For 30 days Daniel prays, as you know, and he's cast into the den of lions. He's delivered out of the den of lions. He says to, to the king, I've committed no crime, O king. He didn't do anything wrong at all, and God delivered him. Acts 5, we could take time to look at all these, but Acts 5, the apostles are told not to preach anymore in the name of Christ, and what do they say? Uh, we must obey God rather than men. We're going to have to keep preaching. They disobey, the, they disobey the authorities. So how do these instances of disobedience to the government line up with Romans 13? Whoever resists authority is opposed to the ordinance of God. Well, I think the best answer I saw of this was Douglas Moo. Listen to this. Think with me through this. Perhaps our submission to the government is compatible with disobedience to the government in certain exceptional circumstances. Listen to this. For heading the hierarchy of relations in which Christians find themselves is God. Christians are to be obedient to all the hierarchies God set up. But at the head of that hierarchy is God, he says. And all subordinate submissions must always be measured in relationship to our all-embracing submission to God. Who's first? God is, right? F.F. Bruce says this, The state can rightly command obedience only within the limits of of the purposes for which it was divinely instituted. In particular, the state not only may but must be resisted when it demands the allegiance due to God alone. So if the government tells us we have to disobey the word of God, we've got to say we can't do that. Now you've overstepped your boundary. But so what is Romans 13 saying? He's saying that we have to have an orderly society and have submission to the government. We only disobey in instances where the word of God is at stake, right? And so that's just something. This is a total teaching of the word of God. I wanted to cover that a little bit. We could think about many things here. The American Revolution, was that right or wrong based on Romans 13? (laughs) That's a loaded question right there. I read a sermon by a guy last night one of the American preachers in the, in the American colonies who said, uh, on the English side, Jonathan Wesley—or not Jonathan Wesley, but uh, uh, yeah, Jonathan Wesley—said the British, the American colonies need to submit to the British government. On the American side, the preachers were saying, no, the British government is tyrannical. And a guy named Jonathan Mayhew preached a sermon, and he, and he went through Romans 13. and said, You're, they're a tyrannical government—they're not fulfilling Romans 13 as it, as it stated. Therefore, we should resist them." And that sermon really lit a, lit a fire under people, by the way. So that's something for you to think about later on. <laughs> but what is the origin of government? It's God who ordained us to live under such a system, right? That's what it says clearly in Romans 13.1. It's God who appointed the present governments in the world today. He expects us to comply with government regulations, unless they come in interference with his Purposes his, his word that tells us otherwise, right? I mean we stand up against things like abortion We don't let evil go go unnoticed. We stand up against those type of things but we spend a great deal of time saying negative things about the government, but We need to keep in mind. That this is God's will Georgie Venz, a pastor and I'll quit in a minute here a pastor in the Soviet Union When they had their oppressive government and religious persecution, <clears throat> I remember the name Georgie Venz a Baptist pastor and beyond the Soviet Union, uh, he talked to John MacArthur one time. And he told him this. He said, there are so many abuses in Russia. And you have to read about the persecution that took place under that system. It's horrible to Christians. So many abuses in Russia. So many abuses toward our people under communism. Horrible abuses. Life is so very, very hard. And then he says this. If any Christian is ever to suffer imprisonment, or punishment it will never be for anything other than the sake of Jesus Christ in all other matters we obey the government now here's a guy living under this tyrannical you talk about tyranny this tyrannical system and he's saying as a pastor in that time now we obey the government unless they want us to deny Christ or go up against Christ so we're to act in compliance with the government and so the first reason for submission to the government is because of its origin its origin. God established government in the world. So don't allow your human reasoning <clears throat> and I know our church won't do, wouldn't do that to bring you into conflict with this truth. Let the word of God instruct us here. Government is God's idea, right? He established it and therefore we, we submit to it. We'll pick up the next two points next week. Let's pray. Lord, well, we do thank you for your word tonight. We pray that we would we uh, understand uh, not only are we submissive to be submissive to the government, but in a greater way, Lord, that you're sovereign over all matters in the world, and we have to. Uh, we, we pray we'll be submissive to your authority in our lives, uh, in every area you've established it to be, and we, we would function in this society in a way that would please you and honor you and be a testimony to all about us. We just pray this in Christ's name.